which, as advertised, began to carve itself into an exact replica of its owner. Cool, Barry said, taking it out for a second to look at the forming portrait. There was even a tiny pipe sticking out of the portrait's mouth, on which, Barry supposed, an even smaller portrait was forming. Boy, a thought like that could break your brain. Barry coughed. He'd never actually lit the pipe before, preferring to use it simply as a prop. Besides playing with the smoke, he couldn't figure out the appeal. His mouth tasted like he was chewing tree bark. The smoke was fun. Wizard pipe smoke could be formed into any shape you wanted. Barry gave himself a sombrero, an arrow through the head, and a devil's horns in quick succession. As he puffed, Barry could see this book's already slim chance at a newly buried medal quite literally going up in smoke. Well, he thought, if I'm screwed already, I might as well go and have some fun. Bloody! An ash had spilled onto his lap. He brushed frantically, but it was too late. A small hole had been burnt in his father's old cape of invisibility. Damn, Barry said. I'd better put this bugger out before it sets me on fire. The pipe extinguished itself, and Barry slipped it into his pocket, then pitched his book into the fire. It was magical, so it screamed. Belching up a little institutional-grade rice pudding, Barry slipped on his cape of invisibility and walked towards the front door of Hogwash. He was the epitome of laziness, except when it came to getting into trouble, or making a little money, or both at once. He delighted in seeing just how far he could push old Bumblemore and the rest. His first few terms had been pleasant, in that, ooh, look, there's that famous kid, sort of way. Lots of ogling and jockeying for his approval. The occasional theft of his knickers, and speedy resale of the same, on e-buy. But then, in exchange for a few hundred pounds, some journo friend of his muddle aunt and uncle wrote a couple of, mostly fictional, books about his life. Then things got interesting. Near the front door, almost brainless Bill glided by, dragging his cerebellum and spinal cord behind him like a child's pull toy. It left a trail of spectral slime. Barry took care not to bump into the spirit and arouse suspicion. Although, last time he did, he uttered a soft moo and ever since Bill had believed that an invisible ghost cow walked the halls of the school. I shudder to think what heinous circumstances led to her spirit's imprisonment in these dank halls. Murder, perhaps, or a doomed love affair? Bill had said at dinner a few days later, while Barry pulled a stomach muscle trying not to laugh. Outside the school now, he moved through the muddy, smelly crowd of youngsters with a quick step. He could never get used to the rankness that assaulted him every evening. Were everybody's fans this gross? It was not merely an unpleasant ripeness, born of too many people living too close together with no sanitation facilities, but a pervasive, penetrating, unnerving funk that seemed to suggest a widely held organic disorder. Tonight the telltale stench of roast centaur also hung in the air. Mixed with the aftertaste of pipe tobacco, it was unspeakably horrid. He coughed and spat to get the smell out of his mouth. The globbit landed on a small, thin, bespectacled girl, who sat cross-legged on a patch of dirt, re-reading a worn copy of Barry Trotter and the Philosopher's Scone.
Footnote 1. This book was released as Barry Trotter and the Magic Biscuit in America. As readers of the first book know, the philosopher's scone contained the elixir of life, making anyone who ate it immortal. This is not to be confused with the elixir of lust, which makes people immoral. Big difference. Anyway, the philosopher's scone seemed like a great career opportunity to the evil Lord Value Mart, who considered compound interest the only power greater than himself. Gaining immortality gave the investment strategy, buy and hold, a whole new meaning. Anyway, after Barry thwarted Value Mart, Bumblemore locked the pastry in his desk. He meant to throw it out, but eventually a mouse got it and became immortal. The other mice logically proclaimed him the Messiah, and ever since a dangerous cult had been growing inside the walls and wainscoting of hogwash. Anyway, the bespectacled girl felt her hair and then looked skyward. Barry laughed. If she only knew she'd never wash her hair again. Barry reached the forsaken forest. At a clearing just inside it stood Huffwood, the school's giant gamekeeper, surrounded by twenty or so women of all sizes and complexions. Two centaurs, Thelonious and Bird, stood talking to Halfwid, smoking tiny cigarettes. Seldom without berets and never without shades, centaurs are the hipsters of the magical world. Barry slipped off his cloak, and all the muddled females gasped as one. He never tired of that. Well, well, Slim's here to get some slickum on the hangdown, Polonius said. Hey, T-Bird, send me some hoof. Who's out there on the spit? That there's Diz. Never did care for him. Polonius looked over his sunglasses at Barry. J-A-M-F, if you ask me. Time for us cats to split, said Bird, and he and Thelonius adjusted their berets and cantered into the woods. In the distance, a lone bongo drum could be heard. Barry turned to the giant gamekeeper. Thanks, Halfwit, old buddy, he said, flipping a coin to the king-sized oaf who fumbled it. You know the drill. Go hang out with your pet bogarts for an hour or two. Footnote 2. A bogart is a shapeshifter that takes on the form of your worst fear, personified as your least favourite actor. Halfwid picked up the coin and bit it. Thanks, Barry, he said, and stumbled uncertainly into the forest, clutching a bottle wrapped in brown paper. Another night, another gaggle of groupies. By now it bored Barry stiff. But in some weird way, it was how he reminded himself he was a celebrity, somebody special. And, he rationalized, talk about giving back to your fans. Okay, girls, line up for your delousing spell, and then we can get started, Barry said. Did everybody remember to wash? The next morning at breakfast, Barry was describing his exploits in graphic detail to a group of rapt sycophants. As was customary, they were showered with well-deserved disapproval from Hogwash's female contingent. Just as a particularly indignant fifth year named Penelope Bluggs was preparing an itching madness spell, the morning owls arrived. Everyone quickly covered their glasses and bowls from the flurry of feathers and mites and such that accompanied every delivery. Owls were a filthy way to deliver the mail. Barry got a letter from the headmaster. He showed it to the group. Maybe it's good news. Maybe all Snipes got cancer of a wand, said Manuel Rodriguez, 
A third year who will not reappear, but was shoehorned in so that not everybody in this story was white, middle class and British. Not likely. It's a yowler. Barry opened it. See me immediately, it boomed, and bring that good-for-nothing lawn with you. There were scattered giggles, which Barry silenced with a mean look and trademark gesture. Lon Measley, Barry's boon companion, was indeed good for nothing, or very little at least. He had suffered a tragic quidditch accident during fifth year. A basher had whiffed on a brainer, causing it to lodge in Lon's noggin at great speed. All attempts to remove the ball had caused it to work its way in further. It finally came out the other side, so that Lon's head had a peephole pushed through it about the size of a one-pound coin. When the wind hit it just right, it whistled. Nurse Pomfrit had jerry-rigged him a new brain, using the barely adequate faculties of a hastily euthanized golden retriever. Lon was left with the capacities of a dim, good-natured seven-year-old, and some definite canine tendencies. Come on, Barry said distracting Lon from the eternal quest to lick himself. Fuzzface wants to see us. Lon smelled worse than usual. Have you been rolling in raccoon poop again? Lon also chased cars. On the other hand, he was extremely loyal. Penelope's itching madness spell thwacked on the wall behind them as they left the room. Pigs! she yelled. Alpo Bumblemore shuffled the cards as he watched the Woodstock-like scene below. He picked a card. Ace of clubs? No, damn. There had been a tent city of the most unattractive sort on the lawn of Hogwash for weeks now, ever since someone had published directions to the school in the Stun, Britain's cheesiest tabloid. Stunningly insipid was the paper's motto. What it lived up to, or more accurately down to every day. Its primary claim to fame was that all the women in its pages were computer-enhanced so as to appear naked. This did wonders for circulation, except when the Queen Mum made news. Anyway, Hogwash's lawn had been churned to ankle-deep muck almost immediately by the masses of stun-reading, barry-loving muddles encamped upon it. Bumblemore grimaced as someone brazenly relieved themselves in the lake. He mumbled a word, and a small, lamprey-like sea monster attached itself to the offending part. That'll teach you, Bumblemore said aloud. Bumblemore heard a splash. Muddles had been pushing each other off Hogwash's high cliff at the rate of five an hour. The resident Kraken was eating well. One of its tentacles held an encouraging placard saying, Jump! Unfortunately, this didn't thin their numbers. More fans were arriving every day. Hippies, the headmaster thought, seeing a pair of fans making the book with two covers in the grass. Drug addicts, D&D &D players. He'd turn them all to cinders if he could, even the ones who were just bookish kids with a weakness for hero worship and savvy merchandising. But there were a fair number of adults in the crowd, too. Perhaps fans of the books, perhaps mason-like wolves moving among the sheep. Oh, well, he said. God protects drunks, blondes, and muddles. An ace fell from Bumblemore's voluminous sleeve. There you are, you rascal. 
Is this about the girls, or selling the map, or something else bad I did, but forgot? Barry wondered, as he and Lon climbed the crumbling stairs to Bumblemore's office. If it was the map, nobody could blame him. He needed that money. His godfather, Sirius Bletch, had sunk his entire inheritance into a harebrained scheme which failed, and Barry had long since burned through the money that J.G. Rollins gave him for telling his life story. A whole summer in the muddle world, in its dimsley encrusted armpit, no less, required many cigarettes and much lager to endure. But Bumblemore wouldn't buy that. He wanted Barry to shove off last year. Nobody ever in the history of Hogwash has been held back for five years in a row, he had yelled. Trotter, you're a disgrace! I know you're doing it on purpose. All this publicity has turned you into a cosmically lazy, slightly magical slacker. Do us all a favor and switch over to the dork side. They'll never recover. The musty old wizard was right, and Barry would be the first to admit it. But who could blame Barry for staying a student? He was a king here, a god. Famous, surrounded by easy marks, who were all too willing to loan cars, do laundry, or any other favour for the great Barry Trotter. Life can only go downhill from here, he thought. At least from Barry's perspective, this latest scam had worked out brilliantly. Not only had he been paid well for the map, but now he had a ragtag, fetid mob of his fans encamped on Hogwash's front lawn. No instructor dared fail him with a five-thousand-strong pro-trotter vandal army so close at hand. However, even he was beginning to get a little annoyed. Their constant, moronic chants of love added sonic unpleasantness to the visual element so amply supplied by their unsafe, rickety lean-tos and unimaginably tatty appearance. They were obnoxious and smelly, and then they had discovered Halfwit's still, and the mass brawling had begun. Halfwit's liquor supply was nothing any sane person would mess with. If Halfwit didn't get you, the jet fuel like spirits would. An apologetic Jeroboam of magic 900 proof brandy patched things up, between him and Barry at least. Halfwit still despised the muddles, and they seemed to know it somehow, singling him out for torment. Halfwit's blast ended brutes sent a few intruders to the hospital, and some others went blind from drinking raw alcohol. But Barry knew he had fans to burn. Boy, these stairs were taking a long time. I wish this narration would hurry up, he said. Lon whimpered in incoherent agreement. As they approached the door to Bumblemore's office, they were dive-bombed by a flock of pickpocketing bats lurking in the shadows. Whatever booty these thieving marsupials got, they took back.